Well, good morning, everyone. If you uh, ever have 30 minutes to spare and you would like to be put off by travelling, put off travelling by rail, um, of course, not that you need too much discouragement if you live on the south coast, then I recommend to you uh, the Wikipedia article on derailment. It gives a brief history of railroad accidents, uh, classification of causes, diagrams, examples, and pictures. I know how to have a good time, you see. So here, for example, is a, a beautiful photo of a locomotive derailed by the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Now, I know that we have some railway enthusiasts in this church. So for them, at least, I would like to point out that the locomotive had three link and pin coupler pockets for moving standard and narrow gauge cars. <laughs> if you'd like to know any more, just come and speak to me afterwards. I'd be happy to share everything I know about trains. Now, um, derailment can occur for um, three reasons, essentially. One is technical error, one is human error, and one is unprecedented external events. Many are minor. All of them result in at least some inconvenience, and some, of course, are fatal. We began our Staying on Track series with the analogy of the running track. And one of the advantages of this analogy is that it highlights our responsibility to stay on track. We are the ones that need to be fit to run the race. We must make sure we don't jump the gun. We must make sure we stay within our lane and don't cross over into another lane. This analogy highlights our responsibility. But one of the disadvantages of the running track metaphor is that it doesn't bring home the seriousness of not staying on track. And that's what the train metaphor does. It's impossible to miss the seriousness of not staying on track with the railway metaphor. If an in-service passenger train comes off its rails, it's a serious business. And if someone's faith is derailed, it's a serious business. We believe as a church, the Bible's message, that eternal destinies are at stake in the decision to follow or not to follow Jesus. And that brings us to John chapter 6 and a salutary lesson to all of us if we have ears to hear. Now, John 6 is a much-loved passage. It's got some memorable stories like the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. It's got some memorable phrases like this one here, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. But what has been preoccupying my thoughts over the last week is that it contains within it a memorable illustration of discipleship to desertion. <coughs> discipleship to desertion. A disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. That's what the word means. 
But the tragic statement that comes towards the end of John chapter 6 is this, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of his followers turned back and no longer followed him. They have, in our, to use our railway metaphor, come off the rails. Why? Well, if you'd like to open your Bibles, you may find it helpful to follow at this point as we go through John 6. Not verse by verse, because we haven't got the time to do that this morning, but just to scan some of the points at which we see the crowds react to what is going on and to what they hear Jesus say. So John chapter 6. So it starts with the feeding of the 5,000. And we're told that the people are amazed by this miracle. Verse 14, it can only mean one thing in their eyes. Surely this is the prophet who is coming to the world. All these hundreds of years of waiting. And finally, the Messiah has arrived. So then later in the evening, Jesus makes his way across the lake and the crowd turn up for breakfast the following morning and he's not there. They eventually find him on the other side of the lake and puzzled asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus gently challenges them about their motives for finding him. And rather humbly, perhaps, they ask, what must we do to do the works God requires. And then Jesus surprises them with an answer that uh, even 2,000 years later on continues to catch people out. Verses 30 and 31. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And now they start to doubt and ask for a sign, even though they were participants in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus tells them about the bread from heaven, and their self-centered interest comes right to the foreground again. They say, sir, always give us this bread. Constant free bread supply. What a saving on the weekly shopping bill that's going to be but they have misunderstood. So Jesus makes it plainer still. He is the bread from heaven. And now they take offense. Isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Verses 41 and 42. Jesus expands on his teaching and uses a metaphor that turns their grumbling into sharp disagreement with each other in verse 52. Jesus expands further still, and now some of them are ready to leave. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And I can almost imagine you know, one of them looking to another one and saying, look, I've had enough here. I'm off. You coming? And then Jesus brings his teaching to a close, verse 65. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And that, for many of them, is the final straw. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. 
It's amazing, isn't it? Over the course of what appears to be 48 hours, they go from discipleship through to desertion, from delight to derailment, so to speak. So what is it? What is it that causes them to go off the rails? Well, it's that they don't like the hard bits of Jesus' teaching. They love the miracles. They love the benefits of being part of a a movement, perhaps. They love the free bread. But there are aspects of Jesus' teaching which they don't like. And so many of them leave. And we ask ourselves as we must do with all of Scripture, as we come across passages like this, is it any different today? Are we any different? Maybe we love coming to church on a Sunday, or we love the benefits of community. Uh, We love seeing God at work. All sorts of aspects of the Christian faith, which we love. But there are certain aspects of Jesus' teaching, if we're honest, that we don't like. Let me toss out some verbal hand grenades. Mark 10, 11 and 12. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus said some very hard things. And if we go before Jesus to Moses, well, he said some pretty hard things as well. Deuteronomy 7, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. And just to complete the picture, after Jesus, the Apostle Paul, one example from 1 Timothy 1, the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. If none of those words disturb you, then you need to check that you have a pulse. Because they are hard words, hard teaching. And I'm not going to explain any of them this morning. But I do want us to invite us to be honest and accept that they are hard words, difficult words, hard teaching. And because of these words, or because of words like them, 
it's probable that some people in this room at some point will abandon their faith. Because of these words or words like them, it's probable that some people in this room at some point will abandon their faith. Why is that? Why, why do we become derailed by Jesus' teaching, by Moses' teaching, by Paul's teaching, by the Bible's teaching? Well, the first cause of spiritual derailment from the Bible's teaching is misunderstanding. This is how it began for some in John 6. So verses 41 and 42 the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus makes no attempt to explain his words. And they make no attempt, apparently, to ask him what he meant. A few verses later, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And again, Jesus makes no attempt to explain what he's just said. And apparently those who are listening make no attempt to understand what he's teaching. So I wonder if Jesus wants us to take the initiative in asking about the things that we don't understand. Now often we do. Often we do ask about the things that we don't understand. But sometimes we don't. And instead, we carry these questions around with us like pebbles that we drop into a a rucksack, so to speak. And over time, as the questions build and no answers are forthcoming, the rucksack just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And it comes to a point when we feel, I just can't carry this anymore. I've just got so many doubts and so many questions. I just can't carry it anymore. And so we abandon the journey. We abandon our walk of faith. So let me say this, as a follower of Jesus, we will always have pebbles in our rucksack. We will always have pebbles in our rucksack. We will always have questions for which we don't have answers. In fact, some of them might be really big pebbles, more like rocks in your rucksack. We will always have them. But if we make an effort to understand Humbly, prayerfully asking God for insight. Asking one another. Studying the word of God for ourselves. Joining a small group. Coming to Sunday services. In all sorts of different ways. If we seek to understand, then some of those pebbles we'll be able to throw away. And that rucksack that we are carrying will never become so heavy that we cannot carry it. So a question for some of us today might be, if we're feeling we're carrying too much, are we being honest in asking for answers to the questions that we're carrying? 
or are we just carrying more and more questions? That's the first cause of spiritual derailment, just not understanding what the Bible says. But a second cause is the challenge that comes with the Bible. So in John 6, Jesus invites his followers to put their trust in him as the bread of life and the source of eternal life. And for many of these first century monotheistic Jews, that would have been a huge change of direction in terms of their understanding and belief. That's what they say. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And this word translated hard has a really rich meaning. It can mean harsh, like a sound that grates on your ears. It can mean harsh as in bitter to the taste. It can mean stiff and unyielding. It can mean cruel, stubborn, obstinate, all sorts of things. So can we be honest again? Can we accept that we find Jesus' teaching hard? that we don't like some of the teaching in the Bible. It can appear stiff and unyielding. It can appear cruel and stubborn and obstinate. It can sometimes be bitter to the taste and harsh. And particularly to 21st century Western Christians, some of the things that trouble us don't trouble our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and didn't trouble our brothers and sisters in previous generations. But we're a soft lot, to be honest. And so some of the things that didn't or don't trouble them, trouble us. Here's an illustration, I hope it helps. Imagine I go to the Chichester branch of the Vegan Society tomorrow, and they ask me why I have come. Well, if I said I'd like to find out about veganism, I hope they would let me just kind of sit in on their meeting and learn something. If I said I want to be a vegan, but actually I'm finding it really tough, Um, I don't have enough recipes or I'm just finding the break with, with meat difficult because I love meat, but I'd like some help. I hope that in that instance as well, they would be welcoming and helpful to me. But imagine I went in and said, I'm a vegan. And, and, I've got this fabulous roast chicken with pork chipolata sausages recipe, which I just like to pass around in the meeting. Is that okay? It would be fair for them to say, would it not? We respect your right to eat what you want, but don't call yourself a vegan, because you aren't a vegan. You see, it's sensible to find out more about the Christian faith before you commit to it. It is normal to find aspects of the Christian faith daunting and to need help with it. After all, a disciple is a learner. And if we call ourselves disciples, then we are learners. That's the camp that I'm in. I need help with this stuff. But we don't get to redefine Christianity. We don't get to choose the bits that we like and say, 
this is Christianity. We don't get to do that any more than a, a vegan can say, I'm a vegan and I'm going to eat chicken because that's okay for me. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I think we've got at least two tricks up our sleeves, two deceitful coping strategies to help us cope with the challenge of the Bible's teaching. The first is this, that we reinterpret Jesus' words or the Bible's sayings to mean something more palatable to us. For example, we might say, when Jesus said, love your neighbor, what he really meant was that friendly person who lives close by, not that really grouchy person two streets away. And then we go looking for evidence in the Bible to support our interpretation of what we want it to mean. Because, to be honest, there is someone two streets away who is a bit grumpy. The heart is deceitful above all things. And the human mind has an inexhaustible talent and ability to create plausible justifications to support our preferred behavior. Psychologists have a word for it which I've forgotten, but somebody will remind me later, I'm sure. And of course, the culture of the day, if that supports our behavior, then those rationalizations will appear to us even more plausible and acceptable. And I was reminded um, just this morning as I was revisiting my notes that, of course, the very first temptation Right back in Genesis 3, did God really say? He didn't really mean that, did he? And that's the challenge that we face. We, we look at what God's word says. We don't like it really, so we think, oh, did God really mean that? I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure he meant something different. And so we reinterpret it to make it more palatable to us. That's our first coping strategy. The second is to hide behind another issue. So again, an example. Um, we stop coming to church because we don't like hearing the Bible's teaching on sexual purity. And somebody asks us where we were on a given Sunday. And we, we say, oh, I had to work or I had to take the children to see their grandparents or a friend came around who needed to chat. All of which are valid reasons in certain circumstances. But we call on these excuses to cover up what is really going on in our lives because we are ashamed to admit our difficulty with the Bible's teaching. Let me suggest that a better alternative to those two coping strategies is to be honest to be honest about the difficulty that we find with the Bible, to be honest about the things that we don't understand and to try and find out what they mean. And then when we do understand them, to be honest that sometimes we find it hard in accepting them or putting them into practice. At the very end of our passage, Jesus asked the 12, 
You don't want to leave too, do you? It's really interesting, really interesting what Peter says. He doesn't say, no, Lord, we're loving every minute of this. And he doesn't say, no, Lord, we we know you don't mean all this stuff. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's almost as if Peter says, we haven't got any choice now, have we? We now know you're the Messiah. We haven't got any choice. We've come to believe. We've heard what you've taught. We've seen what you've done. We've got to know you. We know you're the Messiah. We've got nowhere to go now. You are the one we've been waiting for. So however much we don't understand, however difficult it is, to put your teaching into practice. You are the Holy One of God. We've nowhere else to go. You are the one with the words of eternal life. So let me suggest to you that if we have come to that conclusion, and I'm talking particularly to those of you, those of us who call ourselves Christians, if we have come to that conclusion that Jesus Christ is the anointed one of God, then there are only two ways to go. First way is to come off track. Or I'm just going to twist my metaphor a bit now to choose an alternative track. And that's what some of the disciples, they're called disciples in this chapter, choose to do. Verse 66. They turn back and they no longer follow him. Now, the consequences in this life probably, but certainly in the life to come, definitely, are disastrous if we make that choice. But that is a choice, humanly speaking, that is possible to us. The other alternative is to go on the track that Jesus has set for us. However hard it is, however difficult to understand, however hard to accept, however culturally unacceptable, with the help of God's Spirit, with the help of one another, to follow the track that God has set for us. But as Ellen said towards the end of her message last week, staying on track requires intention and decision. If we don't intentionally decide, we will drift. So the question I want to leave you with, and I leave myself with as well this morning, is which track are you going to choose? Which track are you going to choose? Particularly when passages in the Bible trouble you, are you going to take the view of some disciples who said, that's too hard, I'm off. Or are you going to take the view of Peter who said, we've come to the conclusion that you are the Messiah. However hard it is to understand or to follow, we are going to stick with you. Perhaps you're in that second category, but you're also thinking, well, I'm just not sure I'm up to it. Jesus' teaching is really hard. I'm not sure I'm going to to be able to stay on track. 
But of course, ultimately, it's not about your ability to stay on track. Coming back to John 6 again, and some words that Jesus said before. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So it's not, Je- it's not because of Jesus that you're going to go off track. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none. I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. So Jesus isn't going to let you go. If you're committed to following him, he will not lose you. And that in itself might be a hard saying for some people this morning. Some of you are scratching your head thinking, well, how does that work? Maybe you need to ask. Ask God, ask somebody else. Jesus, in this passage, is presented as the Son of God, the true bread from heaven, the bread of life, the Lord, the Holy One of God. It is in him we must put our hope and turn for grace to stay on track. So, with God's help, let's ask, let's ask for that. Perhaps the band can come up um, and the rest of us, let's pray together. Let's pray. As I was um, just reflecting on this earlier this morning, I was reminded of Joshua's parting words to the Israelites. He said, fear the Lord and serve him. And then he said, my paraphrase, look, if you don't like the idea of following the Lord, then choose who you will follow, but just make your mind up. And Lord, we hear that challenge ourselves again today. Will we today choose to follow you? Even though there are things that are hard to understand and things that are hard to accept, will we choose to follow you? Or are we going to be like those disciples who turn back? Just in our own hearts now, let us resolve what kind of person we want to be. Are we going to resolve to follow Jesus and to stay on track? Or are we going to give up? I think some of us need to hear those words from from John, that I won't drive you away, that I shall lose none of those who've given, that, that my Father has given me. Lord, we accept our frailty in all of this and our weakness and in our own strength, Lord, we are not able to to keep on with the Christian faith. But you promise not to let us go. You promise grace. And Lord, for many of us in this room, we know that you are the Lord. And in a sense, there is no choice but we need your help, we need your grace to keep following you. So Lord, we pray for that. We pray for grace to keep following you.
And Lord, some of us haven't made up our minds yet, and that's okay to a point. But Lord, if we're putting it off, if we know in our heart of hearts that there is truth here, that, that you, Lord, have the words of eternal life, then may it be that today we say, okay, today is the day I start to follow. Lord, if that's us, we pray for your help to follow through on our commitment today. Amen.